All right, good morning. We're in 1 Kings today, chapter 6. We're going to read the whole thing. That's verse 1 through 38. If you didn't bring a Bible, there should be a blue Bible underneath of the chair or maybe the chair next to you. If you didn't bring a Bible and you need a Bible at home, please take that Bible home with you. And in that Bible, we're on page 162. So 1 Kings 6 reads, In the 418th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. The house that King Solomon built for the Lord was 60 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 30 cubits high. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was 20 cubits long, equal to the width of the house and 10 cubits deep in front of the house. And he made for the house windows with recessed frames. He also built a structure against the wall of the house, running around the walls of the house, both the nave and the inner sanctuary, and he made side chambers around all. The lowest story was five cubits broad, the middle one was six cubits broad, and the third was seven cubits broad. For around the house, for around the outside of the house, he made offsets on the wall in order that the supporting beams should not be inserted into the walls of the house. When the house was built, it was with stone prepared at the quarry so that neither hammer nor axe nor any tool of iron was heard in the house while it was being built. The, interest, uh, the entrance for the lowest story was on the south side of the house, and one went up by stairs to the middle story, and from the middle story to the third. So he built the house and finished it, and he made the ceiling of the house of beams and planks of cedar. He built the structure against the whole house, five cubits high, and it was joined to the house with timbers of cedar. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon. Concerning this house that you are building, if you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to David your father. And I will dwell among the children of Israel and will not forsake my people, Israel. So Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the, mo the most holy place. The house, that is, the nave in front, the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. The cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds and open flowers, all was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary was prepared in the innermost part of the house, so there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, and 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold. He also overlaid an altar of cedar, and Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold. And he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until all the house was finished. Also, the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary, he overlaid with gold. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each ten cubits high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. 
it was ten cubits from the tip of one wing to the tip of the other. The other cherub also measured ten cubits. Both cherubim had the same measure and the same form. The height of one cherub was ten cubits, and so was that of the other cherub. He put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house, and the wings of the cherubim were spread so that a wing of one touched the wall, and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house. And he overlaid the cherubim with gold. Around all the walls of the house he carved engraved figures of cherubim and palm trees and open flowers. In the inner and outer rooms, the floor of the house he overlaid with gold. In the inner and the outer rooms. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorpost were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold, and he spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So also he made for the entrance of the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square. And two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding, and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers, and he overlaid them with gold, evenly applied on the carved work. He built the inner court with three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bol, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts and according to all its specifications. He was seven years in building it. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Thank you, Mr. Elder. Well done. Yeah. And the HR people like that, and the general contractors, people who like a lot of details, the rest of us are like, what's he going to do with this? Here's what I'm going to do with that. I'm going to tell you a story about a building, because that's what we have in front of us. And I want to walk through just a few famous buildings just to sort of set the stage. So that would be Hagia Sophia out of all these lists, just to kind of humble brag, that's the only building I've been to. At my other church, I did a mission trip to Istanbul, but it's in Istanbul. It was Christian, then Muslim, Christian, Muslim. Now that Turkey is all Muslim, it's a Muslim space, and it's a beautiful architectural space. Next one here is in New York. Raise your hand if you've been to this. Guggenheimer. Oh, we got one. Marcia's been there. That's beautiful. I've never been. Hopefully one day. Next one. They're all very different. Taj Mahal, that's a pretty famous building. That's in India. Next one. This is, uh, I think it's called the Weird Place in Czech Republic or some strange name, but just a very unique architectural building. I'd love to know the story. Next one. We get a little more famous and well-known. We got the Pyramids of Egypt. And then finally, we got Greece showing up with their architecture. All of those are beautiful in their own way, but here's what the question is. What story are each of those buildings trying to tell? Because that's the question we got to ask, because what we just read is the plans and the execution of a building, specifically Solomon's temple. What story is God trying to tell through this temple? And I'm just going to tell you, I, 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 sort of copy, I sort of stole my outline for today from my favorite kid's book of all time, The Garden, The Curtain, and The Cross. It's the story of redemption told through The Garden, The Curtain. And the cross. If you're a grandparent in this room, you have to have this book and you need to read it to your grandkids. It's the most beautiful telling of the gospel that I've read to my kids. And what I'm doing today is simply walking through the temple, looking at the garden, the curtain, and the cross, because I think that's what this 
text is trying to tell. All the details, all the repetition of gold and flowers and cedar beams and all this is supposed to get us to leave here and remember a garden, a curtain, and a cross. And that's it. That's the story of redemption. So I want to stop and pray. I know we have guests here. We've got people coming to see the McCutcheons. But let's just pray that God would meet each of us this morning. Father, none of us wake up in the morning excited to read Old Testament texts about details of a building that none of us have seen with our eyes. Yet we all have longings in our heart for more than what this world offers. We have questions of why this world is the way it is. And Ecclesiastes says, you have put eternity in our hearts, and our hearts are not satisfied until we find eternity in you. And what we have in this temple is eternity coming to dwell with us. So God, I pray we leave here more in love with you because of this text. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. So the first one, we got the garden here. What is the temple supposed to be communicating? So again, I don't always do this, but I want to show you an example of what God is not trying to do when he gives us this temple. So this is a Mormon temple. They're everywhere. The East Valley, they built one in Gilbert right before we left. It's a, that's a Mormon temple. And if you talk to Mormons about why they do temples the way they do it, they would say, because the Bible tells us to do temples. So what my Mormon friends would say, if they do some digging and thinking about their temples, is what this is is a template for how a place of worship should feel, so take this and go with it. Now, I don't need to remind you, if that's true, we are hosed here at Redemption. Because <laughs> some of you are like looking at, is this where Lorne really wants me to come to this? You think this is, this is, uh, there's no gold here, there's, uh, except in the teeth, that's all we got here, so. So it's not a temp lit it's a temple that was given for them for a specific reason and before we get into the text and kind of see the garden imagery i want to just walk you through this is a video that was put together sort of helping people experience the temple so it's like a minute long but this is the temple as much as we can tell So that, as best we can tell, based off the text Andrew gave and read, is the temple. That's what we're studying. Now, is it, my Mormon friend's right, that's what we're supposed to then put in Goodyear, Arizona, and L.A., and Prague? Or is it supposed to be doing something more meaningful than just architectural plans? And I think it's more meaningful. It is trying to remind us that there is a story God has been telling from the creation of time 
and he's inviting the Jews over and over back into that story. And the first part of that story is a garden, and I want to see it in this building. So let's read verses 14 through 22 together and just see what God, through David, who wrote these plans, and now through Solomon, who's executing these plans, is wanting Israel to remember. Verse 14, so Solomon built the house and finished it. He lined the walls of the house on the inside with boards of cedar. From the floor of the house to the walls of the ceiling, he covered them on the inside with wood, and he covered the floor of the house with boards of cypress. He built 20 cubits of the rear of the house with boards of cedar from the floor to the walls, and he built this within as an inner sanctuary, as the most holy place. The house, that is the nave in front of the inner sanctuary, was 40 cubits long. A cubit is a foot and a half, just for reference. 18, the cedar within the house was carved in the form of gourds, pumpkin-ish fruit, and open flowers. All was cedar, no stone was seen. The inner sanctuary he prepared in the innermost part of the house to set there the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord. The inner sanctuary was 20 cubits long, 20 cubits wide, 20 cubits high, and he overlaid it with pure gold, which we saw. He also overlaid it in an altar of cedar. And Solomon overlaid the inside of the house with pure gold, and he drew chains of gold across in front of the inner sanctuary and overlaid it with gold. And he overlaid the whole house with gold until the house was finished, and the whole altar that belonged to the inner sanctuary he overlaid with gold. So you walk into this temple, and you got all this cedar, but then it's covered with gold, and all these pictures of what? Flowers and gourd, which is fruit, palm trees. You're walking back into a garden. Why? Because the start of this story begins in a garden. Genesis 1. God created everything, and he said, this is good. This is very good. He creates night and day and the land and the seas and porcupines and elephants and rocks and sand and everything he creates. He's like this artist painting. And he says, this is good, very good. And then the pinnacle of creation is Adam and Eve. And then he says he creates man in his own image. In our own image, we created him. And he creates Adam and he creates Eve. So Genesis 1 and 2, the beginning of the story, is this picture of God's creational beauty on display. Order, structure, beauty, everything. And at the center is a man and a woman. And he says, this is very good. And as you walk back into the temple, you are reminded there was once a garden where God said, this is very good. I just did a wedding for, I asked Matt if I could show it, and he said, I would love people to look at me on my best day of my life. So this is <laughs> Matt and Morgan. It is, I've done beautiful weddings. This, holy cow, I was almost late to the wedding, but that's beside the point. It's up at, on the way to Snowbowl, Aspen Corner, and that's where they got married. And I could not help but just think, like, this is Genesis. It's this beautiful creation, which is beautiful in and of itself. God could have created the world and not put us in it, and it would have been marvelous. And the angels would be in awe for eternity at his creation. But he says, I've got a little more addition. I want to add it. Adam and Eve. And he says, that's very good. So as you walk back into the temple, what you're walking back into is... The garden, what God is doing with the Jews and now with the Christians as he's inviting us back into a garden to remind us this is how it all started. 
And just so you know, that's not universally taken. Eastern religions don't have an origin story like that. Mormons have a different origin story than that. What we have is the most beautiful origin story ever. But then something happened. We're in the temple. We look at the garden. Reminders. Beautiful gourd. I just think it's hilarious if that was the fruit that they ate. Like, wow. How embarrassing. Squash. <laughs> but it's beautiful. But there's more to the story than just Genesis 1 and 2. He says, enjoy all this. Every single thing is yours to cultivate, to enjoy, to bless the rest of this world with. Go to town. Enjoy this place. However, and I say this a lot, but I want to, that tree right there, the knowledge of good and evil, don't. I'm your God. I don't have to give you a reason why. Just don't. And what happened? They said, we can have God as God. Or we can listen to this serpent who's stirring up something in me that I like. I like being the king and the queen of my own domain. I don't like having a restriction that's been placed on me. And they rebelled, and they went, and they took, and they ate in the Garden of Eden. And here's how Genesis describes what happens next. And then the Lord God made garments of skin for Adam and his wife and clothed them. And the Lord God said, the man has now become like one of us, knowing good and evil. He must not be allowed to reach out his hand and take also from the tree of life and eat and live forever. So the Lord God banished him from the garden of Eden to work the ground from which he had been taken. And after he drove the man out, he placed on the east side of the garden cherubim and a flaming sword flashing back and forth to guard the way to the tree of life. He created Adam and Eve to enjoy communion, dwelling with him. Enjoy this. And they said, I'd rather be my own boss. And he pushed them out of the garden and he placed a barrier between the garden and the presence of God and now man and woman. And that's where everything went wrong. But it takes us to the next chapter of the story in this temple and in the story of redemption is the story of the curtain. How was this temple situated? Here's what you don't see as obviously in this text is sort of how was it placed geographically on this earth? Like what are the coordinates? And you don't really see a ton, but here's what Exodus is clear on with the tent with Moses. And then Ezekiel has this image. He's a prophet who comes later and God gives him the most beautiful vision of the temple as it's being restored. And this is what it says in Ezekiel to sort of orient ourselves Ezekiel says this, and the man said to me, son of man, look with your eyes. So he has this like, picture of the most intense dream you've ever had. This is what Ezekiel's having. And hear with your ears and set your heart upon all that I will show you, for you were brought here in order that I might show this to you. Declare all that you see to the house of Israel. And behold, there was a wall and all around the outside of the temple area and the length of the measuring reed and the man's hand was given six long cubits, each being a cubit and a hand breadth in length. Again, measurements, we don't. It's not the point. So he measured the thickness of the wall, one reed, and the height, one reed. Verse 6, then he went to the gateway facing the east, going up its steps, and he measured the threshold of the gate, one reed deep. How do you get into the temple? You walk in 
into the eastern entrance. Why? Because Genesis says this, he drove the man out. This is our great, 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 great grandfather, Adam. At the east of the garden, he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. God banished them out. And at the eastern side of the garden, he placed the warrior angels to protect them from doing more harm to themselves. And then he builds a tabernacle, and it's facing east. And then he builds a temple now through Solomon, and it's facing east, and you have to come in through the east. Why? Does that have to do with the sun? And the, there's maybe elements of that. Like Jack Tabarro is one of our key guys here, leader. He's an architect, but I got to be on a building project back in the day at my other church where we walked through his. And the thing that I wanted to ask him for then, which I didn't because I'm like, I'm a nobody. I'm just this schmo. He's not going to say yes. But as he designs your plans, he has this software that kind of shows you what the sun does and where it creates shadows on your land. So he's like, here's the building I want to build for your church. And like, he walks through the entire day and it shows where all the shade is going to be. I'm like, I need that for my house because all my grass that is dead... It's because of shade, but I'm this lowly youth pastor. I'm like, I'll wait, and I feel like I've got enough cred with him now. I'm going to ask him. That software, that's not, can I borrow that for a bit? Because it's like it could be the shadows. Here's what it is. God wants to remind Israel their story. I kicked you out because what you did, and the only way is to own it and come back the same way you had to leave. You've got to walk in through the east because that's how this started when you guys chose not to listen to me. But there's even more than just the direction. All over this is this cherubim talk and imagery, and we saw it in the video. There are all these reminders of the Garden of Eden and the protection that God placed there, and I want to read one of them. Let's read 1 Kings 6, 31 through 36 there to remind us through these words that this temple's illustrating far more than just the good days of the garden. Verse 31. For the entrance to the inner sanctuary, he made doors of olive wood. The lintel and the doorposts were five-sided. He covered the two doors of olive wood with carvings of cherubim, palm trees, and open flowers. He overlaid them with gold, spread gold on the cherubim and on the palm trees. So he also he made for the entrance to the nave doorposts of olive wood in the form of a square and two doors of cypress wood. The two leaves of the one door were folding and the two leaves of the other door were folding. On them he carved cherubim and palm trees and open flowers and he overlaid them with gold. Evenly applied on the carved work, he built the inner court with the three courses of cut stone and one course of cedar beams. What is this? It seems to be like a folding wall. So you've got the holy place and then the holy of holies where only one man can enter one time a year. And with that, it sort of an, looks like an accordion type door. When it's closed, it's the cherubim all over it. And you might say, if you're a note taker, I don't see a curtain. And the, your children's book said a curtain and you said a curtain and you were talking about a wooden door here. Well, over in 2 Chronicles, here's how another part of this very same project is described. 2 Chronicles 3.14, you don't have to go there. This is what it says about Solomon. He made a curtain of blue, purple, crimson yarn with fine linen, and he worked cherubim into it. 
either way you look, it's sort of like the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John. They're looking at Jesus do the same exact thing, and they kind of highlight different elements. What we have here in 1 Kings is you're walking through, somebody walking through a building and sort of taking notes. This is what I see. And then Chronicles, you have another person who's walking through the same building. Well, I noticed the lighting, or I noticed the carpet, or I noticed. Either way, both, whether it's a door or a curtain, even in this section, it talks about the gold rings at the top, which is possibly where they hung the curtain from. You've got a separation, meaning the garden problem has not been fixed. What this book says over and over again, because of our sin, we can't come in. Because of your sin, you can't come in. Because of my sin, I can't come in. And this temple is there to articulate and remind us of that very thing, that because of our sin, we can't come in. And then even if once you get through the door and the curtain, what your face was in the Holy of Holies is verse 27 and 28. This is God's final reminder of the Genesis 3 version of our story. Verse 27. Now he put the cherubim in the innermost part of the house. That's where the presence of God is. And the wings of the cherubim were spread out so that a wing of one touched the one wall and a wing of the other cherub touched the other wall. Their other wings touched each other in the middle of the house and he overlaid the cherubim with gold. What do we have here? Israel. Right in the center of their place. The worship spot. And you have to walk in to an eastern entrance. And you're immediately in this beautiful garden reminding place with gold and fruit and flowers and olive oil and lamps and just beautiful smells and everything you'd love. And at the end of that is a barrier with angels and a curtain with angels. Not happy angels, not like Casper the Ghost, my kids watching on Disney right now, like warrior angels ready to keep people out of that very spot and then you go into that room and then there's actual statues of the angels replicas of what happened in the garden where their wings are so big that they cover the whole room and they're in the center of the room protected by the angels symbolically is the ark of the covenant the very presence of god i mean god is just a great storyteller and a gracious storyteller. And here's what I've just been thinking about a lot. Is just There's a verse in 1 Peter talking about the gospel and how beautiful it is. All the apostles getting to piece out together parts of the gospel story. And then it has a throwaway comment in there. And this is all things that angels long to look. It's like the story of redemption is playing itself out here on earth with us sinners. And the angels, like the, the actual angels from the garden watching. Wow, he's really pursuing them he's still going after him he's still doing this thing wow he's his son it's still happening he's still pursuing the rebels the angels long to look for the thing we take for granted and forget and minimize there's a separation and the curtain was there to represent and remind ourselves of the separation and once you're in the Holy of Holies, what happens there? So just to give you a reference, Solomon's temple lasted for about 370 years. It was destroyed in the Babylonian captivity. They rebuilt another one later, and the Ark of the Covenant was never found. Indiana Jones has it somewhere. But there is not the second temple, which is the temple during Jesus' day. There was never an Ark of the Covenant. 
So if we're talking about the presence of God in the Ark of the Covenant, we've got 370-ish years to work with. So let's just do some math here. The high priest is the one that can go in. Say you change priests every two years. This isn't detailed anywhere. But 400 divided by 2, you got 200 potential Israelite priests who have actually been able to walk in and be with the presence of God. And what do they do when they're in there? They sprinkle blood from all the sacrifice on the mercy seat. And then they leave. And the clock starts again. 365 days later, they can come back and enjoy the presence of God. If God was the stop his story here, that's where this story ends. 200-ish people have enjoyed the presence of God in this unique way. But unlike my Jewish friends, we do not stop the story here. We keep reading. And it takes us to our final chapter in the story, the cross. Before we get to the cross, I just want to give Solomon his due. What did Solomon actually accomplish with what he did? A few verses just to make sure we're, because we're trying to learn about these kings and just have a better understanding of our Bible. So I want to do that. But chapter 6, verse 1, here's the beginning Timeline set. In the 480th year after the people of Israel came out of the land of Egypt, in the fourth year of Solomon's reign over Israel, in the month of Ziv, which is the second month, he began to build the house of the Lord. So that's about 964 BC. He begins. Let's keep reading uh, verse 14. How does he do? Verse 14. So Solomon built the house and finished it. Okay, give us some time frame. Let's go to the very end, verse 37 and 38, and see what Solomon did for us in the story. In the fourth year, the foundation of the house of the Lord was laid in the month of Ziv. And in the eleventh year, in the month of Bull, which is the eighth month, the house was finished in all its parts. And according to all its specifications, he was seven years in building it. He completed his job. He finished the temple. He's king for 40 years. He spent seven years on this project, 13 years on his palace and his governmental headquarters. But most of his kingship is building stuff. And he did what he was supposed to do, build the temple, which was to hold the presence of God. Solomon, good job. We want to give you your due. However, he did not complete everything. Two things specifically. The king of the Jews, the Messiah, the king of the universe was supposed to be obedient and walk in the ways that Adam refused. And there's just a, even a little like, if you know the story, you hear it and you're like, this doesn't end well. But verse uh, 11 through 13 is God's way to sort of just remind us Solomon's not our guy. Now the word of the Lord came to Solomon concerning this house that you are building. If you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules and keep all my commandments and walk in them, then I will establish my word with you, which I spoke to your David father, and I will dwell among the children of Israel, and I will not forsake my people Israel. Solomon, if you are obedient, I will dwell with my people forever. The garden will be back. The presence, there will be no separation if you walk in my statutes. Chapter 11 is titled, Solomon Turns from the Lord. The obedience that the king was supposed to have, Solomon could not be the guy 
to do it. And here's the other thing. He could not be the sacrifice that these priests showed up with every year as they sprinkled blood on the mercy seat. Like all the preparation, all the smells. Those of you that hunt and have actually got it in, it's like an intense aroma. And they're just filled with it. And every year they walk in reverently, trepidly, and they place the blood on the Ark of the Covenant. And then they walk back out. How does the Bible describe those faithful men who did their job for a long time? Here's how Hebrews would describe Solomon's temple and the priests who got to go into the presence of God. Day after day, Hebrews 10, every priest stands and performs his religious duties again and again, and he offers the same sacrifices, which can never take away sins. Solomon, you built a temple. You did your job in this story. But all you've done is create a space for priests to show up and do something that cannot accomplish what it's representing, and that is the atonement and forgiveness of all the sins for the Jews and for us in this room. Verse 12, the good news. But when this priest, Hebrews, if you haven't read it, it's all about Jesus. So whatever they're talking about, it's about Jesus. So this priest, Jesus, when he had offered for all time one sacrifice for sins, he sat down at the right hand of God, and since that time he awaits for his enemies to be made his footstool. For by one sacrifice he is made perfect forever, those who are being made holy. How? Through the cross of Jesus Christ, which is the sufficient sacrifice that that temple never could house. And he came and he bled and he died, not reluctantly, but willingly. Hebrews says, for the joy set before him, he endured the cross. Why? So that he could sit down and the cross could accomplish what the temple began to bring us into this story that needs a redemption chapter. And it's here now, in the person of Jesus. Here's how this book ends. Try not to cry. And now here's what Jesus says to us. Jesus has sent everyone an invitation to come and live with him there too. And he tells us, God says it is wonderful to live with him. Because of your sin, you can't come in. But I died on the cross to take your sin. So now all my friends can come in and we can live with God forever. And there will be nothing bad and no one sad. We will see God, speak to God, and just enjoy being with God just as he had planned. And it will be wonderful to live with him. And it's all because of Jesus. Amen? The garden is being restored. The curtain has been torn by the death of Jesus Christ. And now we're invited in. Only by the cross. If you have not seen the cross for what it is, now is your time to receive what it offers. And it's dwelling with God now and forever. Let's pray together. God, thank you for... Uh, we don't always like this, especially when the pain is in our life, but you taking your time for the story to unfold. So that the meaning, the meaning, the substance, the beauty, the imagery can really be experienced as we long for better things. So God, I thank you for Solomon's temple, which was there for hundreds of years for people of faith long before us. And now we have something better.
We don't have a building. We don't have a gold-covered room. We have a person, Jesus Christ, who came and dwelt with us and lived among us and ultimately was punished for what we should be punished for. God, thank you for a beautiful story that you've recorded in your word that others like this children's author have taken so that younger ears and more simple ears can hear and understand that there was a garden. Your plans for this world are very good. And there was a curtain because we chose otherwise. So you had to have a separation. God, this whole time, the separation is at a plan. And it's the cross, so the separation is over. We are with you now and forever, and you will not forsake us because of Jesus being the perfect sacrifice. So God, we love you. Just let us treasure Jesus in our communion time together. Amen.